most important words in Scripture. The trajectory of our lives and our future destinies were changed forever. One simple word, but, would shift the focus from your sin and mine to God and His grace. The word but serves as a signpost of hope, hope that comes from God. Hope that has the power to transform your heart and renovate your mind and reorient your steps to reorder the things that you love, to rearrange all of your priorities. The word but has the power to revolutionize your eternal destiny. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Read along with me, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us Alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, with the image of uh, the cemetery fresh in our minds, we're reminded once again that uh, before grace, before Jesus came crashing into our lives, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were lost. We were without God and without hope in this world. We loved sin. We loved Satan. We followed the prince of the power of the air. And so as we uh, move forward in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, I I thank you for the first word in verse 4, this conjunction, but, that marks a contrast between verses 1, 2, and 3 and where we will go for the remainder of this chapter. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, and I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to understand with great clarity the intervention, the intervention that, that you uh, secured on our behalf so that we would be your children, so that we would be numbered among the redeemed, so that we would be reconciled to a holy God, so that we would see the, the great depth and the riches of all your love that is found in Christ. Please encourage us, your people now, in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is A Divine Intervention, God's Plan to Rescue Sinners from the Spiritual Grave. Last week, we took a stroll through the spiritual cemetery, and we discovered the the great horror and hopelessness that is etched onto our spiritual tombstones. I want you to remember that if you are a Christ follower, you will learn how God has come to your rescue, how he intervened on your behalf. This morning we will discover how he rescued you and how he rescued me and gave all of us a great hope for the future. 
This morning we will learn in very clear terms how God intervened on behalf of spiritual zombies. What exactly does this divine intervention look like? Before we learn the the precise nature of this intervention, we need to establish something vitally important. We need to remember together that good deeds will never cut it with God. That is to say, good deeds or self-help will never raise people who are trapped in the spiritual cemetery. What we can do, the things that we can accomplish, our approach to God in that sense is absolutely futile. Self-effort is futile. Simply put, we cannot work our way to God. We cannot earn favor in the sight of a holy God. There is only one way. There is only one way out of the spiritual grave. And the answer is found in two words. God intervened. This morning, I want you to see three very specific ways that God intervened on behalf of spiritual zombies. First, I want you to see that that God intervened by making us alive together with Christ. Verses 4 and 5, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version that says, But God... Focus there for a moment. I, I highlighted that, that conjunction, but, which may be one of the most important words in all of sacred scripture. But even more important than the conjunction, I want you to see the subject of this section of scripture. And the subject is God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. If you have a chance to ever take a peek at the King James Version, some of you actually may have that version uh, before you this morning. You'll see that the Greek word that is translated made us alive, is translated in the King James as he quickened us, which I actually like a great deal. That God in his sovereign grace and mercy quickened us or made us alive. It's interesting that this particular term that is translated made us alive is only found two times in the New Testament. The first is obviously in this passage in Ephesians 2.5. The second I want to have you look at with me is in Colossians, just a, a few books over, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And here's what Paul says. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, does that sound familiar? You who were, past tense, dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That is, God made you alive together with Christ. That little phrase, made when it is used in Ephesians and the book of Colossians, it is in the context of what? It's in the context of death. It's in the context of what we have learned is the spiritual cemetery. And the word here means not only to quicken, but it means to raise from death to life. 
And I, I want you to, to rejoice and to glory in this great reality because if you believe and understand that before you became a Christian, you were lost and without hope, that you were, you were in your trespasses and sins, most notably you were dead in your trespasses and sins, the great reality is that God made you alive. Can you believe it? That God quickened you. And this is what is referred to in Christian theology as the doctrine of regeneration. It is, it is an absolutely vital doctrine that we want to take time to explore this morning. Regeneration, according to J.I. Packer, who just lives north of the border in Vancouver, B.C., says this, Regeneration is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. Packer says it extends to the whole nature of man, altering his governing disposition, illuminating his mind, freeing his will, and renewing his nature. The late R.C. Sproul adds that the Spirit recreates the human heart, quickening it from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regenerate people are new creations. Where formerly they had no disposition, inclination, or desire for the things of God because they were dead. Now they are disposed and inclined toward God. In regeneration, Sproul says, God plants a desire for himself in the human heart that otherwise would not be there. This is the doctrine of regeneration. That God, in his infinite mercy, looked into the, the spiritual cemetery and he saw you as one who was lost and without hope and without God, who had no desire for God, no inclination for God. You were not seeking God and he quickened you. He made you alive together with Christ. I want you to notice that this is written in the past tense. That he made us alive together with Christ. When you were regenerated, it took place in a split second. It took place in a split second. And so there's several things I want you to examine together with me. The second thing I want you to see is that regeneration is a direct result of unconditional election. And we labored through Ephesians chapter 1 to learn about the doctrine of unconditional election. The idea, the biblical idea that God chooses people to be saved. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so you see that God in eternity past chose some to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
That's really the, what you might say, gets the ball rolling in redemptive history, where God in eternity past looks down and he chooses some. The next step is what theologians refer to as the gospel call. That is what's taking place right now, where sinners are, are called out, as it were, where sinners are called on the carpet, where the, the pastor, the evangelist, the missionary, the Christ follower says, you are lost in trespasses, you are dead in your trespasses, and sins. You must be born again. And if you're thinking clearly, you notice something very interesting. The testimony of Scripture is that you must be born again. But if you think crystal clear about this, realize this. If you were dead in trespasses and sins, how do you get born again? There's something that has become popularized throughout, oh, oh for, for several years in the church, it's called decisional regeneration. That is, I believe, I I believe in order to get born again. The problem with that is this. You can't do it. Why? You're in the spiritual cemetery. In other words, you need God to intervene on your behalf. So the doctrine of election, the gospel call, and then we come to this point, the doctrine of regeneration. When Jesus, and we'll look at this in a moment, in John chapter 3, says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That is synonymous with you must be regenerated. There's a third thing I want you to see, and just to alert you, some of you may think that we're going to take 10 minutes on point 1 and 10 on point 2 and 10 on point 3. Point number 1 will occupy most of our attention this morning. So I want you to see number three and have you realize that regeneration is a special work of the Holy Spirit. It is a special work of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because in our, our church doctrinal statement, we have this very finely tuned sentence that says, Regeneration is the sole work of the Holy Spirit that brings God's elect to repentance and faith. More on that in a moment. This special work was, was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. And you don't need to turn there, but let me read this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36 that says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't this exactly what spiritual zombies need? We need new hearts. We need transformed hearts. We need the ability to believe. We need an inclination, a disposition, as J.I. Packer says, for God. This is the special work that is prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36. Number four, I want you to see that regeneration now is an instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit. It is an instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, you see, is is a point-in-time event. It is not something that takes time to develop. When you were regenerated, it literally happened in a split second. The way the verb is written in the original Greek, it's written in the aorist tense, which means that when God quickens a sinner, as the King James says, when God God raises us, when he makes us alive together, it happens in the blink of an eye. 
Number five, we've already seen that regeneration is a special work of the Holy Spirit, but I also want you to see that regeneration is a secret work of the Holy Spirit. Turn over with me, if you would, to John chapter 3, and we'll see this in, in very clear terms. In Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, we learn more about the doctrine of regeneration. He says this in verses 7 and 8. He says to Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has been born or regenerated by the Spirit, or of the Spirit, rather. Number six, please see that regeneration is, is grounded in God's mercy and love. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. But God being, and, and don't miss the depth of this, but God being rich in mercy. Can you imagine if God was not rich in mercy? Think about that. If God were not rich in mercy, it's spiritual cemetery for you and I. We would be lost forever. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That word mercy in the original means compassion or pity. And Paul quantifies this mercy and he says that this mercy is rich mercy, which means that it is extremely wealthy or has a, a great degree attached to it. It is a rich mercy. Paul says in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal. Of the Holy Spirit. This is a rich mercy. It's a mercy that, that none of us deserve. But also notice the word love. It's a word that many of you are familiar with. It comes from the Greek word agape, which means to, to love or to take pleasure in. And once again, Paul quantifies this love of God. We've seen that the, the mercy of God was rich mercy. And how does he quantify love? He says it's great love. Number seven. Regeneration is a prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God. We looked at this exchange in John 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, with this, this spiritual cemetery metaphor rich in our minds. Think about this. If you're in the spiritual cemetery, how, how in the world can you see the kingdom of God? You're six feet under. Your eyes are closed to truth. Your ears are closed to truth. Your hands have no desire to, to, to engage for the truth. Your feet have no desire to, to plod forward for the truth. How in the world can you be regenerated? Well, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the word unless in Jesus' teaching signals a, a universally necessary condition for seeing and entering the kingdom of God. That is, rebirth is an essential component of biblical Christianity. Without it, entrance into the kingdom is simply impossible. 
We have learned that sinners are dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore, regeneration, and listen carefully, regeneration must first take place in order for a sinner to confess faith in Christ. Number eight, I want you to see that regeneration now is a sovereign work of God. That is to say that God will regenerate whomever he will. And we learn that in this exchange, once again, between Nicodemus and Jesus, did we not? Where Jesus says, hey, Nick, the wind blows wherever it chooses to blow. And that's the same way with the sovereign grace of God. He will regenerate whomever he will. Romans nine eighteen. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The wind blows, according to John Murray, wherever it wills, which enforces the sovereignty of the Spirit's action. Number nine, I want you to see that regeneration now is a soul work of God. It is a soul work of God. There is no human participation in this doctrine. Will you turn with me to the book of 1 John? And I can, I can tell you many, many years ago when... I was studying the book of 1 John, and I came across this verse. It's a verse that I'm sure I had read many times before, but this is the day when this reality was cemented into my mind. And it says this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone, which includes whom? Everyone who believes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, notice, has been, past tense, has been born of God. Everyone who believes, that is, everyone who who puts their faith in Jesus, everyone who says, as I did when I was a small child, Lord God, I believe that, that I'm a sinner. I believe that I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I have been following the devil. I have been loving everything contrary to your law. I believe in Jesus. Now, in order for that to take place, in order for the sinner who is dead in his or her trespasses and sins, in order for that to happen, that person needs to be born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Turn also with me to the book of First Peter, just a, a few books over. First Peter chapter one, and we'll we'll see this same point illustrated. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Peter says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. To be born again. That is, sinners are utterly passive in regeneration. When God regenerates us, he didn't do it because we asked for it. We did it because he sovereignly granted grace. In a very important section in John chapter 1. This is the section of scripture that many of you have memorized. Verse 12 of chapter 1. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How many of you memorized that when you were a child? It's a very important verse. 
But something has always perplexed me. Why is it that we're typically not encouraged to memorize verse 13? Because it completes the sentence that says, who were born or regenerated, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were regenerated by God. Regeneration is the sole work of God. Number 10, I want you to see also that regeneration precedes faith. Many of you may have grown up where you you heard an evangelist say, believe and you'll be born again. Trust in Jesus in order to be born again. And that's actually not the order that it takes place in. Regeneration, you see, precedes faith. And we saw that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. There's a fascinating account of a a woman by the name of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And we read this about Lydia, who was a, a seller of purple linen. It says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did the Lord open her heart? He had to open Lydia's heart because she was in the spiritual grave. Her eyes were blinded to the truth of God. He regenerated her heart. He gave her grace. Number 11, regeneration now gives us new inclinations. You see, what happens when, when the Spirit of God regenerates our hearts? He, he, he changes everything. He gives us new inclinations. He gives us new desires. Our proclivities and our priorities are totally revolutionized. You see, in the spiritual grave, we're not interested in God. We're not interested in the kingdom of God. We're not interested in the word of God. But what we learn here is that regeneration gives us new inclinations. And we learned that, did we not, in Ezekiel chapter 36. We are given a new heart. Our heart of stone is, is turned into a heart of flesh. And we're given the Holy Spirit which indwells in us. Number 12, regeneration gives us new abilities. That is freedom that did not exist as an unregenerate person. We have new abilities that did not exist as unconverted people. And then finally, notice with me that regeneration is by God's grace alone. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. That God, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul tells us how it happens. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. We have been rescued from the penalty of sin. That is, we've been rescued from the wrath of God. We have been rescued from the power of sin, which leads me to say, glory be to the triune God. In John chapter 11, I love John 11 because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. As I reviewed this section of Scripture, I realized something that I don't don't think I'd noticed before, and that is that the Scripture does not really reveal in great detail the response of the witnesses of that scene. I want you to imagine that we all went to the cemetery, that, that one of our best friends had died, and that we had heard that Jesus was in the area. Jesus was in, in uh, Abbotsford. 
And so we, we, send, we send someone up. I, I asked Kyle, I said, Kyle, would you drive up to Abbotsford and get Jesus to come down? We're going to see if he can raise our friend from the grave. And so we all go to the cemetery, and Kyle comes walking in with Jesus, and Jesus raises our friend from the dead. What would we do in this household of faith? Rejoice. We would rejoice. I can guarantee you this. We wouldn't say, I'm going to mark that down on my journal. Jesus raised Mr. So-and-so from the dead. That's great. Okay, now let's uh, go to the next thing in our our things-to-do list, right? We would have outstretched arms. We would rejoice. We would celebrate. We would, it would be very unbaptist, wouldn't it? We would be hooping. We would be hollering. Some of you would dance. Just some of you, not all of you. It would be one of the most amazing things that we have ever seen. And so I want you to know this, that when God regenerates a sinner... It should spark praise in the people of God. Why? Because this is a miracle of massive proportions. When we learn about sovereign grace, it should cause our affections to explode. But I believe this. Too often we have grown content learning about truth and tucking it away in neat little categories. And this simply will not do. When we learn that God intervened for us in the spiritual cemetery, it should cause us, as Spence said, it should cause our hearts to rejoice. And so I want to have you look one more time with me at Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 4. Read it with fresh eyes and begin with that amazing conjunction. But the context is spiritual death. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is what I'm convinced of, that sometimes we become so orthodox. And mind you, orthodoxy is a good thing. We become so orthodox that we forget to delight in the truth that we have discovered. We have discovered a a rich mystery that that God in his mercy, his rich mercy and his great love has made us alive together with Christ. And so I've asked Jason and the worship team if they would come and help us celebrate the fact that God has made us alive together with Christ. So let's stand and sing the song together. was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had 
not love me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be be seated. That's an example of what I'm referring to. We learn a great theological reality, and what do we do? We don't tuck it away. We don't create little categories in our minds and, and just put a, a checklist on, on our piece of paper. Rather, we delight. We worship. We delight in the Lord for this great truth. God made us alive together with Christ. That's the first way that he intervened on behalf of spiritual corpses. But there's a second way that he intervened. Scripture tells us that God raised us up with Christ. Look at verse 6, Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up with him. 
That phrase, raised us up, means to raise together or, better yet, it means to resurrect. It means to resurrect. So we have not only been made alive together with Christ, we have been resurrected up with Christ. Now, hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 2 and once again go to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, we see this repeated emphasis once again in the thought of Paul. He says to the Colossian church, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. That is, raised with Christ. Now, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, recall with me how God showcased his power when he raised Christ from the dead. Do you remember that taking place? Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he did what? Raised him from the dead. And here's the important point. The critical reality is that the same power that God used to raise his son from the grave, that is the same power that he has demonstrated in your life when he raised you from your spiritual grave. You have been raised up with Christ. And since we have been raised up with Christ, we are, as Romans 6 says, alive to God. Since we have been raised with Christ, we walk in newness of life. Since we have been raised with Christ, our wills are inclined in a new direction. Now think about this. In the spiritual cemetery, what was the direction of our wills? And I know I'm I'm stepping on sensitive ice here. What was the direction of our free wills? Our spiritual inclinations in the spiritual cemetery were to run as far away from God as possible. Our desires were to disobey God, to displease God, to follow after the prince of the power of the air. But what has happened? God intervened for us. He made us alive with Christ. He raised us with Christ. And so it would be a grave mistake, pardon the pun, to merely acknowledge this theological reality. Once again, it would be a grave mistake to simply categorize this and tuck it away in our notebook and move on to something else. We must go one step further. We must apply this to our lives. How do we do it? Hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 2, and once again, go to the book of Colossians. And Paul the Apostle tells us exactly how we apply this reality, the fact that we've been raised together with Christ. Look, first of all, there there are several things I want to commend to your attention. The first is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then, and we could say since then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. For those of you who are Christians, here's the first point of application. Seek the things that are above. What does it mean? That means think eternally. That means think about the big picture. That means think and aspire to things that are above. That means to focus on the kingdom. We don't get preoccupied with the world in which we live. Rather, we focus on the kingdom. So how do we do it? Number one, we seek things 
above. Number two, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is really a a re-emphasis of what he said in verse 1, 2. Not only seek things above, but set your mind on things that are above. And I'd be the first to admit, it takes discipline. It takes an attitude that is focused in on the kingdom of God, where we literally set our minds on things that are above. Number five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, that's the word porneia, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What do we do? For those of you who are, have been raised together with Christ, do this. Squash the flesh. Squash the flesh. You see a bug on your table, what do you do? You squash the bug. In the Christian life, we run across these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, etc., Paul tells us, squash the flesh. Look at verse 8. He goes on. But you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. That is, shatter ungodly attitudes. All of those things that Paul refers to are attitudes that are totally ungodly. Things that are inappropriate in the Christian life. Things that we all wrestle with. Paul calls us to shatter those ungodly attitudes if you have been raised together with Christ. And then look at verse 12. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. And be thankful. What are you thankful for today? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. For those of you who have been raised together with Christ, you ask, how do I... How do I put this into motion? You seek the things that are above. You set your minds on things that are above. You squash the flesh. You shatter ungodly attitudes. And finally, you start living a God-centered life. You say, "But, but I can't do it. That is the correct answer. It is Christ who lives within you. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. God has raised us up together with Christ and therefore he expects us to live like it. I want to ask you this question this morning. What is preventing you from living a life that is glorifying to the Lord? I want you to challenge you to identify anything that is is hindering you. Anything that is getting in in the way of, of you and fellowship with God to confess it to God 
and move forward in victory for the glory of God. And so God has made us, number one, alive together with Christ. He has raised us with Christ. But there's a third and final way that he intervened on our behalf in Ephesians chapter 2. We see that God also seated us with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a fascinating phrase that's translated seated us. It simply means to to sit down together. Now notice again what God did for Christ in Ephesians 1 as he seated him at his right hand. We just looked at this a moment ago. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ, that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We are seated together with Christ. We are exalted with him in the heavenly places. One commentator says this means we have a position of superiority and authority over evil powers. How do you resist temptation? How do you walk in obedience? You remember that God the Father has seated us with Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Followers of Christ, men and women, young people, we are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We no longer follow the evil course of this world. No longer do we follow the prince of the power of the air. We are no longer prisoners to our passions. We are no longer under the wrath of God. We have a new address. I remember when I was a, a boy, we lived on Alder Street. And I was, I was very young when we moved to Alder Street. And one of the first things I remember my mom and dad doing was encouraging my brother and I to remember our street address, that we lived on 1706 Alder Street. And then we learned our phone number, 360-491-6726. I mean, that was like, that was like 10 years ago. That was a long time to remember. I mean, that was like 50 years ago, right? I still remember it. The same holds true in the Christian life, that we have been given a new address as Christians. How does God intervene on behalf of sinners who despised him and gave him a vote of no confidence? How does God intervene on behalf of sinners who find their satisfaction in the world, the flesh, and the devil? How does he intervene on behalf of spiritual zombies? God's divine intervention plan to sinners is this. God the Father made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with Christ. And at the center of this divine intervention plan is this. And I want you to see it and never forget it. At the center of this intervention plan is Christ. 
that he made us alive together with Christ, that he raised us up with Christ, that he seated us with Christ. There's one final thing I want you to see before we close, and that the scriptures tell us the motivation now behind this divine intervention. And verse 7 reveals the purpose of this heavenly rescue mission. Whenever you see the, the English words, so that, that alerts us to the purpose. And that's exactly what's happening here. So that in the coming ages, he might show, that is the father might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. At the end of redemptive history. You might say at the end of the, the grand show when all the elect are gathered from every tribe and every nation and every generation. Do you know what the nations will recognize? They will see that God is kind, that God is compassionate, and that our God is a merciful God. The nations will see the depth of wisdom that God displayed when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the final sacrifice for our sins. And here's what the nations will do. All the nations will marvel at sovereign grace. There will be two kinds of people at the end of the age. First, there will be people who place their faith in Christ, who will marvel at the rich mercy and the great love of God. They will marvel at his amazing grace. And the first group will delight in this great God for all eternity on the new earth forever and ever and ever. I hope you're in that group. The second group, however, is a group of people who, oddly enough, will also marvel at this great God. But since they refuse to bend their knee to him and submit to his authority, they will bear the weight of all their sins, every sin that they ever committed, they will pay in hell under the wrath of God and the justice of God forever and ever and ever. Here's my challenge to you this morning. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, we will all marvel at God at the end of the age. Some of you will marvel at the depth and the glory of free grace that you received, you'll delight in God for all eternity. But some of you will marvel at God's grace from a distance, and you will find yourself cut off from the kindness of God, and you will endure punishments for your sins for all eternity. Today is the day of salvation. There's, there's no more time to wait and one of the things I saw on my phone this morning is that there was a plane crash and I ran and a lot of people were killed. And the first thought was, I wonder how many of those people knew about Jesus. I wonder how many of those people have, have hearts that have been quickened together with Christ by God. I wonder how many of those people have been raised together with Christ, who have been seated with Christ. I wonder if any of them had been quickened. And the thought occurred to me that we don't have much time. This is an urgent message. It's a message we live. It's a message we proclaim. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for uh, giving us the, the context in verses 1 to 3, for reminding us of our hopeless condition apart from grace, apart from your Son. But we thank you for the, the good news that we have learned about today in these verses. We thank you, God, that you are the subject of these verses, that uh, you made us alive together with Christ, that you raised us with Christ, that you have seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. God, for anyone here who has, has yet to uh, surrender everything to God, I pray that you would do a, a work of grace in someone's heart today, that you uh, would perform the miracle of regeneration, that you transfer someone from darkness to light, that someone would walk away a a child of the king, that someone would walk away, a new creation, all to the glory of God. For those of us who are in Christ, Lord, may we, may we celebrate sovereign grace today. May we celebrate sovereign grace for the remainder of our days. Some of us have a, uh, a very short time. Others of us have many, many years to enjoy in the days ahead. But wherever we are in our pilgrimage, may we delight in sovereign grace. May we delight in you, God, and the grace that you have given us in Christ. And now as we come to the table, may we remember these elements. May we remember the, the bread that reminds us of the, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we remember the juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for our sins. And may we rejoice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. We would, uh, if you were a visitor here this morning, we'd love to invite you to take part in this with us. And if you are not a believer, we'd ask that you would let the bread and cup pass by. The only biblical requirement for doing this is, is that you are believe in Jesus Christ. We do this to remember the cross and what Jesus accomplished for us there. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, that as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only Son to make a wretch's treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his